Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. India has had a complicated relationship with the United States since its independence. The emergence of independent India coincided with the onset of the Cold War during which India pursued a policy of non-alignment, a policy which was considered by many even at that time and since to have been something of a stumbling block in the development of India-US relations. However, with the end of the Cold War and India's embrace of globalization, the relationship between the two countries began to warm up and they moved towards a much closer bilateral relationship. Today, most analysts of Indian and American foreign policy are sanguine about the future of the ties between New Delhi and Washington. Of late, the emergence of China as a great power and the consequent security challenge to Indian and American interests in Asia is considered to be a primary driving force between the US-India relationship and its development in the future. Yet, China's role in shaping India-US ties may not be all too recent. The China factor, so to speak, is critical to understanding the US-India relationship. Not only has China impinged upon India's ambitions in Asia and continues to do so, but it also is a challenge to the dominance of the United States within the same region. How then is China poised to shape Indian and American involvement in the Indo-Pacific? What does it mean for the future of India's bilateral relationship? To discuss these questions, we have with us today Dr. Tanvi Madan. Tanvi is a senior fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Her work explores India's role in the world and its foreign policy, focusing in particular on India's relations with the United States and China. She also researches the intersection between India's energy policies and its foreign and security policies. Tanvi is the author of the recently released book, Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War. And she's also a prolific writer and commentator on contemporary foreign and security policy issues. Tanvi, welcome to Interpreting India and thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast, Rina. Your book has an interesting subtitle. It says how China shaped US-India relations during the Cold War. Now, it's commonly acknowledged that in the current relationship between the United States and India, China is an important factor. And we all talk about the Indo-Pacific and the rise of China and what it means for the United States and India. But what about the historical sort of context of China's importance in the U.S.-India relation? It, it's not something that much has been written about. What's interesting is we do see in kind of the history of U.S.-India relations, you often find these momentary uh, incidents or episodes where China is featured as, you know, shaping U.S.-India relations. Uh, one, of course, is 1962 and the other one is 1971 and having a very opposite impact in those two instances. But what I found as I was researching this book, which was really looking into the question of what is it we're missing about U.S.-India relations now that we had access to more official documents from both sides? Uh, what is it that we're missing that doesn't explain some of these uh, uh, these uh, questions we had about why did U.S.-India engage? You know, how do you explain change, not just continuity in the Cold War relationship? And one of the things I found is that the, the administrations in the U.S. and governments in India actually did see, even going back as early as the period between 47 and 49, uh, and then throughout at least this point till the early 70s, early to mid 70s, that both U.S. and Indian policymakers did think about China 
as they were thinking about relation, the relationship with the other. So let me give you just one instance. Um, we often think of U.S.-India relations. Robert McMahon famously said, or his, his, the subtitle of his book or title was Cold War on the Periphery, in, which was about U.S. relations with South Asia. But what we find is in 1949, when Prime Minister Nehru first goes to the U.S. and meets President Truman, there are two subjects that they discussed. One was Kashmir, which is, of course, what we hear about a lot in the relationship. And the other was China. And that is also why they welcomed Prime Minister Nehru with open arms, because they had, quote unquote, just lost uh, China to communism and saw India in that uh, from that framing. So from that early point, uh, the U.S. saw India as kind of potentially a uh, contrast, a democratic contrast, and potentially a uh, counterbalance to what they saw as obviously communist uh, or red China. Um, and then you saw Indian policymakers recognizing that the U.S. saw this framing and saying, how do you use it to elicit aid uh, and benefits for India as it was seeking to grow? And over the next uh, about 20 odd years, if not longer than that, you did see China shaping this relationship, sometimes in ways that we see today, that it was uh, driving them together. But we've also seen points in that period of time, including that first uh, point in the early 50s, uh, when their divergence on China, they saw China very differently, uh, the US and Indian policymakers, it actually created serious problems between the US and India. And you're referring to the period between, say, the Korean War and perhaps the height of India-China Bonomi, which might be the Bandung Conference Absolutely. in 1955. And Absolutely. Uh, and, and, uh, but how do these views then start shifting? I mean, who makes the shift first? Because India is officially non-aligned during the Cold War. You're trying to create a new kind of a relationship between India and China. Uh, at, at what point does the needle start really shifting away from that kind of dynamic? So initially, this period that you talked about, it's not like um, U.S. and India had diametrically opposed views of China. They did see that even Indian policymakers saw that China could be a challenge. They thought it was further down the line. I think where you start to see the changes you know, in about kind of 1956-57, and it's often traced to 59, but it's really in this 1956-1957 period where you see change on both sides, which is that both the U.S. and India start to see China uh, as a challenge, but in very similar ways. So, for example, the Eisenhower administration started seeing the Cold War as not just this geopolitical competition, but an ideological and economic battle uh, between kind of the free world and the non-free world, so to speak, uh, or rather the communist and the non-communist world. And in this framing, it was as important for uh, the U.S. and its allies to win uh, this battle of hearts and minds and stomachs and not just on kind of the battlefield. And in this framing, India, which is uh, this non-communist country, suddenly starts to matter because they need India uh, to win what they used to call the fateful race with uh, Soviet ally, communist China. And so they start seeing it differently and decide uh, need, that the U.S. needs to help build India up to help them win the race. On the Indian side, the change comes because India starts to see now China as a more geopolitical concern, uh, not just because the concerns about the boundary become more apparent. It becomes apparent that Panchil is not quite working out uh, the way Indian policymakers had hoped. 
there is concern about Chinese uh, 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 kind of activities in India's neighborhood, particularly Nepal. Um, and there's concern that China isn't living up to some of its uh, promises uh, that it had made, not just uh, during Pashi. There's also concern about China, how China is behaving globally uh, and how China is actually hand in glove in some cases with the Soviet Union uh, post the kind of uh, hungry crackdown, uh, but also in some other instances where Nehru starts to think that his idea that the communist uh, uh, partners want uh, a monolith is actually not quite working out. So you start to see India actually now seeing China as a geopolitical threat uh, like um, the US does. So I think that convergence and that both sides start to agree on how to approach that challenge, which is a partnership with each other uh, for different reasons, but a partnership with each other and kind of having India play this role in Asia, which is a contrast. I want to sort of explore this particular period of the late 1950s uh, in a little more depth. Now, as you said, you know, the United States and India, somewhat independently of each other, come to see the challenge which China poses in independently in somewhat different ways from the earlier period of the early 1950s. Uh, but some of my own work uh, in, in this domain uh, seems to suggest the Chinese also harbored concerns about US and India working together and actually in more covert ways, right? I mean, for instance, the Chinese would repeatedly uh, tell the Nehru government that, listen, there are places like Kalimpong in India where there are these emigre Tibetans who are, you know, hand in glove with CIA operatives and so on. I mean, what does your research really tell us about that period? I mean, were those concerns true? Was there a core of truth which was then kind of blown out of proportion? What is the story? So it's interesting you mentioned Kalimpong because I've always said I want to write a either a fiction or non-fiction book on Kalimpong set in the in the late 50s because you had separately Indian, American and Chinese officials use the term Kalimpong as the nest of spies. So someday I will write a book called Nest of Spies based on that it could be fiction or non-fiction. I don't think we have enough evidence to know that the US and India were either were working together uh, in, as China has said, very actively colluding uh, to destabilize China, whether through Tibetans or through Chinese nationalists, uh, the uh, KMT or the GMD. What we do, I think, have evidence of is that, um, and pretty active evidence of, is that the that Indian officials knew about these links between uh, U.S. intelligence uh, and Tibetans as well as Chinese nationalists, which were taking place in Indian territory or over Indian territory in terms of overflights. Because we do have conversations about uh, Indian officials trying to say, look, not saying don't do this, saying basically either try to avoid it or make sure that the fingerprints aren't seen. Uh, and because in some ways it does suit India to have these links, but there isn't the, we don't have evidence yet. And it's possible as we get uh, more information and evidence over time that we'll see that they are more active. Now, is it possible that there were more kind of operational links on the ground that the people at the center in Delhi either didn't want to know or kind of knew and looked the other way? That's possible. But from what we know so far about the 50s is that there was definitely at least some knowledge of it. Okay. Now, moving on to the period from 1959 to 62. One of the things which strikes me as very interesting is that despite the fact that India knew that they were on some kind of a coalition course with China, you know, 1959, and that's when the first sort of border clashes happen. Indian soldiers are killed. 1960, you have the Chinese uh, Premier Chow Enlai coming to India. There are long talks which do not go anywhere. 
uh, and then you have this slow sort of build up by both sides along the border culminating in the um, war of 1962 but why doesn't the indian government during this period once it becomes apparent that uh, we are in at least a hostile relationship with china if not in an active shooting match not look to the united states for a greater kind of you know geopolitical military assistance or security assistance as you might call it what's interesting to me is that you do see in this period to some extent i think not just in india but even in the us a sense that while these these this friction was happening at the boundary that it wouldn't quite break out into a war and so i think to some extent that gave indian officials some amount of uh sense that they had time and that time meant that they wouldn't also have to because partnering in some cases might have in a very active way would have required uh either abandoning or upsetting the soviet partner that india had and the preference had always been to kind of diversify these relationships these partnerships to make sure that india had options open and also the sense in the nehru government that keeping the soviet option open meant that the soviets might use their influence with china to keep uh, uh to keep that threat down or to keep them from taking up hostilities active hostilities i think uh, there was some amount of partnership with the us it's not uh, quite to the extent that we see much later but what we do see is the sense that uh nehru and his government has that one way of hedging against that threat is to build india's economic and domestic capability and so you do start seeing conversations both about getting some sort of military equipment uh but particularly on the economic side the us at this point really becomes uh the country that uh starts really giving aid to india and very much because of the china framing um but the us also does and india looks to it uh to try to give it some rhetorical support after us. so this is the 60th uh, uh, anniversary of the famous eisenhower trip in december 1959 and one of the things that the nehru government tried to use it for is to signal china and of course from 1960 you have john f kennedy's uh who's perhaps up to that point one of the most pro india uh presidents that the united states has you know and under him the democratic party develops a vision for its relationship with india which which remains uh quite important uh at least in the early 1960s and uh one of the figures who uh, features quite uh, fascinatingly in your book particularly during the 1962 war itself is the man whom kennedy sends as his ambassador to india john kenneth galbraith and you are one of the first historians who has looked at galbraith's own papers uh and i i was just wondering if you could give us a sense of how important was galbraith's role in you know pivoting us india relations much closer together at that moment of crisis in october november 1962 so one of the things the book actually tries to say in the us cover of the book features not kennedy as many books do and uh, i believe yours did as well um uh, on us india relations it features a picture of eisenhower and nehru and part of the point that i'm trying to make is that it is indeed true that the kennedy administration people like galbraith but also at the national security council people like robert comer these some of these figures we don't know that they were crucial in deepening that sense of alignment but one of the arguments the book made is that many of those changes including how india was seen in relation to china actually starts in the eisenhower second eisenhower administration i think where galbraith really um it it is part of this question of do personalities matter and the i argue that personalities of course matter but 
personalities also within a structural context. So no ma- where Galbraith, I think, matters is that he had a personal relationship with Kennedy, uh, that he uh, had the sense of India going back to his de- academic days, uh, that he also had a personal relationship with Nehru. And at those times, American ambassadors could pick up the phone and call the prime minister and you know engage with a number of other Indian leaders. So I think his ability to essentially... Um, convey India's sense of concern at the time that he could have that direct link. But I also think we shouldn't exaggerate his role. I think because by that point, you did see a larger ecosystem that had bought into this idea that Galbraith has often highlighted. Um, I don't think he caused the pivot. I think he was a key figure in it. Uh, But by that point, the system was already primed to receive this. Uh, And frankly, if that hadn't been the case, he could have been writing to Kennedy nonstop about things and Kennedy wouldn't have bothered. So I think the fact that he was actually on the same page as the president, who back going back to the mid 50s, at least, even when he was a a kind of on on Capitol Hill and not the White House, had the sense of India that it needed to win this race against China. I think he had a president who had bought into this idea. Uh, which is partly why I was appointed. So I think he was crucial in being here and acting as that link. But as the story evolves, he's also one of the figures that was problematic in terms of pushing after the war, uh, pushing for India and Pakistan uh, to reach a deal uh, that would make it more conducive for the US to aid India. So I think uh, his role is very interesting. It's crucial, but it's not as one-sided or one-directional as we uh, have believed in the past. You know, in the couple of years after the 1962 war, it seems like there is a kind of a divergence in American policy towards South Asia, by which I mean primarily India and Pakistan, which opens up as far as the China angle is concerned, right? Because on the one hand, you of course have this triangular relationship that you've sort of framed so beautifully in the book uh, coming up between India, China and the United States. It's now explicit, right? I mean, it's it's no, no longer about independent assessments, softer convergence, things which we can you know, look back and say that, yes, those were important points, but very clearly being articulated. The, the, the kind of challenge that China poses, the threat as it was perceived at that point of time, is uh, is, is quite clearly front and center in the way the relationship is being crafted, right? And we know that after the 1962 war, there are a number of things that India allows the United States to do, even from its own territory, uh, in, in order to cope with that. But on the other hand, you have Pakistan, which starts, uh, you know, forging this entente with China. Right. So the United States now has this kind of a very tricky problem of saying, listen, how, you know, the China factor in the one side is, is kind of sharp, but on the other side seems to cut against its own closer relationship with Pakistan. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about how, uh, particularly during the mid 1960s, this sort of balance was struck? Um, so it's interesting that Pakistan actually, by this point, uh, especially um Late 50s, early 60s, it starts reading the writing on the wall in terms of U.S.-India relations. And to some extent, uh, to try to say to the U.S. that, look, if you you are going to engage with India, we will go and engage with China. Um, And China is also kind of open to these links because its relations with India are strained by this point. But you do see kind of, to some extent, trying to kind of use a potential relationship with China as a a kind of point of leverage with the U.S. You do see Pakistan, but also because I think there's a recognition in Pakistan uh, that Indian non-alignment actually had its benefits, which is you could actually try to get um, benefits from multiple uh, actors. And so you do see this China-Pakistan relationship 
uh, develop in the early 60s, of, of course, in the middle of all this China and Pakistan signing this boundary agreement in 63, which the consequences of which still are felt today. Um, but you do see also that um, uh, um, uh, Chinese officials constantly using this China relationship, even as they continue to deepen it, continuing to say to the U.S., well, if you don't give us aid or you don't limit your relations with India, we will uh, we will kind of use uh, uh, we will go closer to China. Now, at that point, that argument is actually, because it's it's the first time it's starting to be made, it actually does work with a number of people, and particularly with the defense and intelligence community who had surveillance facilities and communication facilities in Pakistan, which they were concerned about. And so you do see uh, the US, both from the side that they don't want to see China moving close to Pakistan, so maintaining that relationship, um, but also saying to India and Pakistan, look, you two need to make up and focus on the real threat, which is China. So the U.S. is telling India, Pakistan should be part of your China solution. Make up with Pakistan, you can focus on China. India is saying to the U.S., look, Pakistan's now become part of our China problem. Uh, but you do see also this causing the U.S. setting limits to Pakistan uh, going to close to China. It is actually what starts to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Pakistan. Uh, not just eventually it gets to even Pakistan-Soviet relations, but this idea that, look, if uh, if Pakistan's really this non-communist uh, and, and a member of CETO, which is really anti-China at that point, is then how are you flirting with the Chinese? Uh, and how are you complicating our relationship? So you see both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations set real limits of how much Pakistan can veto the India relationship, but it does constrain it for the very real reason that India saw Pakistan not just alone, but now in conjunction with China as part of the problem. And so you see this really... Uh, play out of the 60s. And then 65, the 65 war is quite interesting in this regard because it involves all the, not just three actors, but uh, the Soviet Union and Pakistan as well. Okay, so let's jump forward a little bit. We know that by the end of the decade uh, of the 1960s, there is another dramatic turnaround uh, in the strangler relationship, which happens primarily because of Richard Nixon attempt to reach out to China and to establish a relationship which would eventually translate into a much more stable sets of things which would be done. And we know the impact of this, particularly during the 1971 crisis, which you mentioned at that point of time. But I was very intrigued in reading a book that a bit like what you said about Eisenhower, the person who seems to be actually quite important in the context of the 1970s, Jimmy Carter. And you again are, I think, perhaps the first South Asian historian who's looked at Jimmy Carter's extensive archive and given us a sense of what the Carter administration's role was. Because on the one hand, the Carter administration also solidified that opening to China, the formal diplomatic relations were established. But at the same time, Carter also reached out to India because Carter became president just as the emergency in India was being wound down. So give us a sense of uh, what the Carter period and its importance with which your book really closes in some ways. So the Carter period, you see this president come in who himself didn't know very much about India, but his mother had served uh, in the Peace Corps. Uh, and so he has this India link. So, you know, the kind of stereotype of him is a peanut farmer who didn't really know very much, but had very strong ideas about human rights, uh, nuclear uh, non-proliferation. Uh, but this is a period where, which is actually almost set up for the US and India to have the term we use these days is a reset, um, where he, because India just came out of the emergency, 
Um, he does overlap a little bit with uh, Indira Gandhi's uh, uh, emergency era government. But, you know, the fact that elections are called Moraji Desai had expressed in the past concern about nuclear weapons. Um, and so he, you do see this kind of more values based, but also on this nuclear side, two issues that mattered. But one of the things I think we people often forget about uh, uh, the uh, Carter administration and not just Jimmy Carter himself, but National Security Advisor Brzezinski, they also saw this geopolitically. And what you start to see is, we talked today about a multipolar world, you start to hear them using that language. That, see, we see either um, the world as a transatlantic world, uh, and we're too focused on US-Soviet competition, and what we need to think beyond the Cold War. Things that India had been saying, that they are, they use the term, they are these regional influentials that will really be that next uh, phase of who will be crucial in these various parts of the world. And for them, the key uh, among them was India. Um, there is a China angle here as well, though. Um, by this point, the U.S. wants India and China to make up because they think it will ease their uh, problem with the Soviet Union, that it will prevent India from getting even closer to the Soviet Union. And so you see a Carter who's actually initially skeptical about Nixon's rapprochement. And he tells Brzezinski, you know, you China-friendly folks have gone too far. You even threw India under the bus. Um, that he decides he needs to have this normalization with China. But at the same time, he is now uh, using that relationship that he's established. And there's these long series of letters, which we now have access to, between Moraji Desai and Jimmy Carter. They established this personal relationship. There's long discussions about China. Moraji Desai explaining India's uh, continuing concerns about China, yet that uh, he's pointing out that he would like uh, to also stabilize relations with China. And of China. course, watched by Goes, his yes, foreign minister, in, 19, in 1979, encouraged by the U.S., and you see in U.S.-China discussions during this time, uh, Carter, unlike uh, the previous administrations where they had tried to kind of, uh, you know, create, uh, encourage the friction between uh, China and uh, India. In this case, Carter actually saying to China, you have an opportunity to engage with India, encouraging it. And that way you will keep uh, you will keep um, uh, India away from or you will limit the, the, the extent to which uh, the Soviet Union uh, will become an Indian uh, or how far that Soviet alliance will go. So moving closer to the time uh, in which we are and trying to use some of this historical background, which you provide in such rich detail in the book to reflect on the more recent times. I mean, maybe, you know, jump 30 years from 1977-78 and you come to the US-India nuclear deal, uh, which again seems to be this very important event uh, in recent times, which kind of at once symbolizes, but also cements the relationship between the two sides. Uh, to what extent was China a factor there? And of course, we know that soon after with the global financial crisis and uh, you know, turn towards a more assertive foreign policy on the part of China means that you know, that becomes front and center. But at the moment when the uh, nuclear deal itself is being conceived of, is China in the background or is it more in the foreground really? So I think it's in the background in public. But I think very much so whenever we see the papers, when you talk to policymakers, both American and Indian, uh, they point out that it was, very, it was very much on the table in the discussions that they had. And you have seen some memoirs which act, acknowledge that without kind of this China factor looming, you would not have got to the point, particularly in the US, where India would have been seen uh, differently. And you see um, the Bush administration's idea of India as this contrast and counterbalance to China, really as early as 2000, 
uh, where then campaign advisor, foreign policy advisor in the campaign, Condoleezza Rice, writes this foreign foreign affairs article in early 2000, saying we have spent, uh, we've we've basically always looked at India in relation to Pakistan. We now need to look at it in the context of a rising China, and that very much is the context in which this nuclear deal was signed. Uh, and you you often have publicly. Um, uh, you know, people talking about the nuclear deal as uh, being motivated by energy needs or, uh, for example, by, uh, you know, India's desire to kind of be recognized essentially as a de facto a nuclear weapon state, taking it out of the doghouse, so to speak, and bringing it into the clubhouse. Uh, but without this kind of concern, this shared concern about China, um, I don't think both sides would have taken the risk. And what it did do I think there was some, it was one of the major contributing factors, but what it also did is it allowed India and the US to get beyond this obstacle that was in the relationship, uh, which was partly not just about nuclear, but the sense in India that the US was out to stop India's rise or somehow keep it from leadership. This actually, uh, with and and in terms of taking, making, taking these steps, uh, opened the door for that greater collaboration across the board, uh, not just on China-related matters and having that discussion of China, but across the board on the economic side and on the defense and security side that we see to the present uh, to the present day. And of course, the Obama administration builds on this even as China's rise becomes much more prominent. In a sense, the global financial crisis spotlights that particular uh, thing and then makes everyone aware of China's relative heft in the system and how it has grown. Uh, and of course, then you have the pivot towards Asia, in which India is said to be an important part. In fact, the entire region is now recast as the Indo-Pacific, as, as, as it's uh, called. And, and of course, in 2015, January, when President Obama comes to India, uh, you know, they also have this joint vision statement, uh, which is released. And then that seems like another very important moment in recent times, uh, when a much more clearer set of priorities and policies are being conceived of uh, with China, particularly in mind. Uh, and it is also signifies something that, you know, we often, when new administrations come or new governments come here, uh, we often think of something as new. You know, it's different. The, um, uh, you know, the current thing is that the Trump-Modi uh, interaction, that US-India are suddenly focused or people are moving together. Uh, the kind of narrative you laid out also shows that, you know, for example, the quadrilateral dialogue. What happened first in 2007, 2008, when it was Manmohan Singh and President Bush. Uh, you saw the US-India-Japan trilateral start in uh, the Obama administration, which is also when you saw the first discussion of US-India discussion on kind of an, uh, on East Asia and Southeast Asia. And so you've seen now actually fairly consistently, I would say, almost for the last 20 years, maybe a little less than that, this very kind of bipartisan sense, and I think it's accelerated after 2008, uh, across different governments uh, and administrations, this idea that there is a shared concern about China and that China has taken this assertive turn. Um, but I think my book has a lesson in this is that it's not enough to just see China as a concern. It is also necessary to agree on how urgent that concern is, uh, what the nature of that concern is, and how to tackle it. So one point of difference, for example, uh, between the Obama administration and even the Manmohan Singh government and then the Modi government, which is there was some sense in India that the Obama administration saw China as a challenge, but thought it could be managed through largely engagement. 
and in a taking a more accommodational approach. Whereas at that time, India in that kind of period between, uh, especially 2009, 2010, uh, and uh, even after that, saw the Obama administration, thought the Obama administration didn't understand the urgency of the challenge or that an engagement heavy approach would not be sufficient. So I think you do see the shared concern about China still, you know, the convergence driving the relationship. But I think it's also important in the current day, not just to keep in mind that it is not just agreeing that China is a concern, also agreeing to the approach. I think the other thing that is important uh, to remember is uh, when the two countries differ on China, that can create problems. So U.S. the Indian disappointment with the Obama administration saying, you know, the U.S. was too focused on getting a climate change deal, so was looking the other way on some things. That then creates, you don't want to create a sense where China is the only driver, driver of the relationship because then when you don't agree on China, it actually creates problems for you, doesn't leave much of a backing. And so it was always, it's always been healthy, even while these joint strategic visions have been signed, et cetera, that there's also been uh, other elements of the relationship that there has been convergence on. So for somebody who's written a book saying China is, you know, matters a lot, um, the book also says, and about the present day, which is that is not the only thing that should be the driver of the relationship because either country can change its mind about China uh, in the future, and that will create problems in the U.S.-India relationship. And just building on that point, it strikes me that there is another way, particularly from India's vantage point, in which, uh, sorry, the U.S.-China relationship is seen as potentially problematic, is that the United States and China might actually start doing all kinds of deals on top of countries like India, right? So China has been pushing for this G2 framework, call it whatever, new model of great power relations, basically saying that, listen, the United States has to acknowledge China as a peer, as an equal. And, you know, it's always equality and mutual respect, right? I mean, that phrase is never going to be missing in any communique from the Chinese when it comes to America. Uh, and, and that, it seems to me that with the Donald Trump administration, you know, whose line on China tends to kind of stagger and veer, even though there is at some level, there is an acknowledgement that China presents not just a security threat, but an economic challenge, a technological challenge of various kinds. But there is also this desire that, listen, we need to cut a deal with the Chinese because the president has to go back on campaign trail and so on. So there is a bit of a, a certain lack of clarity about how this might play out. So how would you, looking back at almost four years now of the Trump administration, how do you think the China factor really has played out in US-India relations? So it's interesting because I actually think you've seen almost every phase of kind of US-China relations and seen the Indian response in this kind of three, four years. To some extent, India's concern about a G2 has been prevalent since 1971. Uh, this idea that the US and China would come together and that would complicate India's interests. Uh, India has always preferred this kind of, very, just like the US has, very Goldilocks. You want a US-China relationship that's not too warm because that doesn't leave you much space to have leverage, then India doesn't have too much room. And you don't want to see a too frosty uh, US-China relationship, because then both countries are forcing you to make choices you don't want to make. And I think in the last four years, you saw in the beginning um, this sense uh, when President Trump first came, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty before, but especially around the time of the Mar-a-Lago summit, you saw those concerns about a too warm U.S.-China relationship, uh, and a lot of concern about what that would mean for India's having been for a number of years benefited from this U.S. concern about China. 
suddenly this concern with President Trump for two reasons. One, that the as people had believed in the even the Obama administration and the Bush administration, that because of economic interdependence and the U.S.-China economic partnership, that eventually they would make a deal. Second, there was this now angle of North Korea, that China could actually facilitate a U.S.-North Korea deal, and so it would make itself useful to the Trump administration. There's a third aspect as well, which is in the course of his many years talking about foreign policy, President Trump has also shown an ability to say, look, I don't understand his skepticism of alliances and partnerships. And so there's always been this concern at the back of people's minds, I think, that he might be happy with the spheres of influence uh, world where he says G2, US-China condominium, China deal with Asia is not our problem. Why should we be wasting money there? Why should we care about it? So I think those concerns you saw during that Mar-a-Lago. But I think since that summer of 2017, we've actually seen a more assertive uh, U.S. policy on China, uh, openly calling it a rival and pushing back where previous admission. This is not just a Trump ad- or President Trump thing. It's a Trump administration approach, but also arguably it's something that is wider and across the party aisle in um, uh, political aisle in the U.S. You do see this hardening, this idea that that China relationship hasn't delivered in the way that the U.S. had expected. I think for India, on the one hand, it's been beneficial because it has created some space in terms of getting defense technology, uh, deepening its partnerships, hedging, for example, against you know when China is acting assertive towards India. Uh, in the case of Doklam, reportedly U.S. assistance very quietly uh, on that front. Uh, but you've also seen India be slightly wary of getting too involved because unlike India, which rarely refers to China by name, um, you you know having that angle where you don't want to get dragged into things that the U.S., some elements of the competition that the U.S. wants India to be in, but it's not an Indian interest to get involved. Finally, I would just say, um, this is also the Trump administration and the assertive policy that he's taken towards China, uh, or kind of the more competitive approach, has created a little bit of a space for India with uh, China. Arguably, uh, Xi Jinping would not have come to the table uh, after Doklam had he not been concerned about an uncertain uh, U.S. Uh, he would not have gone to the Japanese as well. But I think that did create space. Um, and now I think the jury's out. Let's see. I, mean, I think the uh, uh, U.S.-China trade deal, uh, we don't know if it's phase one or pretty much the only. So I think now there's going to be wait and see. It'll partly depend on how China sees the deal and whether it decides that this is the time to actually engage with India to take advantage of Indian uncertainty about what might happen. Or they have decided that, look, India is a U.S. partner, a Japanese partner, and even its partnership with Russia is partly driven by its concerns about China. So essentially give up on that uh, and focus on trying to get that G2, which then complicates India's interests. So as our listeners start thinking about how this relationship might play out in the future, perhaps we could close by asking you to suggest any particular book or article that you've read lately, which you think uh, gives us a good handle in terms of understanding how the China factor might play out in US-India relations? Of course, they should read your book, but <laughs> anything else? This is a good question. I mean, one of the things I would say is understanding how the China factor is going to play out in US-India relations. I think it's important to understand US-China dynamics. And I would suggest uh, two articles that come at it from a different perspective, at least two articles. Um, one is Evan Osnos's piece 
uh, in the New Yorker on what happened in the U.S.-China relations over the last few years. And the second is a pair of articles. Is one written by a few years ago, or maybe not that few years ago, by Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner, essentially saying that uh, the U.S. got uh, China wrong. Um, and then the recent rejoinder to it by Jim Steinberg, uh, who was Deputy Secretary of State in the Obama administration uh, and Deputy National Security Advisor in the Clinton administration, saying, explaining uh, that uh, kind of responding to that critique uh, that the U.S. Um, made a lot of mistakes um, with China. And the reason I say that's important is I think you see the nature of the U.S. debate. Um, and that actually can tell, I think it's important because I think that angle, uh, we know a lot about, often know about U.S.-India relations, but I think particularly um, the this aspect of understanding U.S.-China. I think it's also important to read um, some of Ashley Dellis's recent work. And the reason I say that's important is because Ashley, amongst others, who has been one of the people who's laid out this idea that you, that India could be that counterbalance and contrast to China. Great. And we link uh, to all of these articles in our show notes. Uh, Tanvi, thank you so much, first, for giving us this brilliant book and secondly, for being here. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Rina. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage, 